So this morning, uh, I'm going to do uh, Apologetics 101. What is apologetics? And um, I'm going to cover very broadly the different types of apologetics, but I'm also going to attempt to go over a couple of the more popular arguments, such as the ontological argument and maybe uh, one of the cosmological arguments. And I'm going to uh, challenge you for you to do something on your own uh, when you have time, because I think what apologetics can do is can really help you answer those difficult questions that you may come across uh, in your face. So the big question is, what is apologetics? Now, apologetics comes from the Greek word apologia, uh, which means a defense as in a court of law. Now, the dialect to which this uh, passage that we derive apologetics from, which is 1 Peter 3.15, is a dialect of Greek known as Koine Greek. It is a dead language, which means it is no longer used, even though some of the, the words are still used. The language altogether is a dead language. The word apologia would, meet, would have been understood as a legal term, as in a court of law. So when I say apologetics or a defense of the faith, if I were in that time period, it would be understood that I would be given a defense as though I were in the court of law being prosecuted, okay? <clears throat> now, when it comes to apologetics, why is this necessary? Who does the prosecuting? And the answer, quite obviously, is unbelievers, non-believers. And they make the prosecutions we defend. But also, if you think about it, sometimes... We prosecute ourselves. We ask our own questions. What is going on in the world? Why are things like this? Is God real? Is all of this just imagination? Questions like that. So what is apologetics meant for? First Peter 3.15. Peter is writing here to his followers, to the elect. He addresses the elect as they are dispersed throughout different parts of the world. Cappadocia, Asia Minor, um, and all throughout the world, and he says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks to give an account for the hope that is in you. But, and an interesting caveat here, with gentleness and respect, you have to ask yourself, why would he add gentleness and respect? There's a justice position in this passage that should be considered. Now, apologetics is not meant for the sake of having greater knowledge, just for the sake of having knowledge. Paul warned about knowing things just for the sake of knowing things. In other words, to become a know-it-all lends to being puffed up, being arrogant, being proud. Peter realized that this knowledge of how things work in the world was for a practical application, namely a defense of the faith, okay? 1 Corinthians 8.1, yet mere knowledge causes people to be puffed up, to bear themselves loftily and proud, but love, the word love originally used, or excuse me, the original translation in English was actually charity because it denoted an action, not just a feeling. Uh, charity, affection, and goodwill and benevolence edifies, and edification is essentially, it's just an uplifting education. To be edified is to be uplifted in an educatory way. Okay. Now, apologetics is meant to be a defense of the Christian faith. Your defense and indeed a defense for Christianity as a whole, your brothers and sisters. The question is, is it meant to be an offense? Now, the reason why I ask that is because you'll notice if you've spent any time in the apologetics community, if you watch debates either in person, online, 
you'll notice that there's a tendency to, I want to be careful how I say this, oftentimes, especially with younger apologists, you'll see that apologetics becomes a substitution for the presentation of the gospel. People will attempt to argue you into the existence, or argue you into Christianity as opposed to presentation of the gospel alone. And here's what I mean by that. Um, Fill in the blank here. The blank is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel, Romans 1.16. Notice it doesn't say apologetics, okay? Now, apologetics doesn't strengthen the gospel. And here's what I mean by that. The gospel does not need strengthening. It stands on its own. Apologetics strengthens our grasp of the gospel. It aligns our worldview to what is actually true. The gospel is the cornerstone, and I like to look at it as apologetics as maybe other parts of the house. <laughs> but one of the most freeing realizations I think anybody could have when it comes to defending your faith is that not only can you not prove the existence of God, and now when I say proof, I want to define these terms real quick. When I say uh, the difference between evidence and proof, I've defined here accordingly. Evidence is an undeniable fact. Uh, proof, oh, I, I got those, <laughs> those backwards, I'm so sorry. I need to switch those. Proof is an undeniable fact. I wasn't paying attention when I wrote those down. Evidence is a sign or an indication of that fact. Imagine a, a pile of, or a, just imagine this was mud right here and you saw footprints. Footprints would be evidence that I was standing there, but it's not a fact. You don't know that I was actually standing there. It could have been something else. A proof would be me standing there. Does that make sense? So when it comes to proving God, by the strictest definition, the only true proof of the existence of God would be to bring God down here in person and have him demonstrate to you irrefutably that he is in fact God. Does any of us have that capability? Absolutely not. It's not within our capability. Do we have evidence, by definition, for the existence of God? The answer is irrefutably yes. There's evidence everywhere we look. And that's essentially what apologetics is about. Learning to discourse in regards to that evidence. So, here's another question. Or here, if, I've ever, if I'm going to be known for saying anything smart or intelligent, I would want it to be this. And it is that proof is neither a premise nor a prerequisite for truth to be true. Let me say that again. Proof is neither a premise nor a prerequisite for truth to be true. In other words, what is true is true regardless of my ability to prove it or my inability to disprove it. Question. Who, excuse me, let me ask it this way. Did Columbus actually make the world round? No, he simply proved it. Magellan proved with evidence that the world was in fact round, but they didn't actually make it round. So the question is, was the world round before they ever actually proved it to be true? The answer is obviously yes, okay? Now, when it comes to apologetics and also kind of going back to we do not argue people into the existence of the Christian faith, into salvation. Remember, 
that there were people that witnessed the undeniable evidence of the reality of God starting in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve walked with God in the flesh, in, in physical form, in their physical form and his physical form, yet they still ultimately chose to disbelieve him even after the fall. And by the way, going back to that, that state of being is, is known. Uh, Rev talked about it a few weeks ago in Sunday school, and he talked about it's a, it's a Latin phrase called passe pecare, which means possible to sin. When an infinite being creates a finite being, the possibility, although mathematically and philosophically exist, that it is possible that they become corrupt because they are finite. So the possibility to sin was always there. After the fall, non posse picardi, not or non posse non picari, not possible to not sin. Okay, not really going to go too much into that. But even after the fall, there were men and women that witnessed the miracles of God, undeniable, a pillar of fire, the Red Sea being the, being parted, detailed prophecies fulfilled. Yet they still, there still were many people that didn't believe. We cannot argue someone into the existence of a new nature. That is a miraculous transformation that happens by the work of the Holy Spirit alone. However, we present a defense for the faith in a logical order and structure. Now, Scripture is written in logical order, and its propositions are logical propositions. Now, what do I mean by logical propositions? So let's define logic simply real quick. Logic is proposition in accordance with reality. Simply put, okay? Logic is proposition in accordance with what is actually true. And we're going to take a look at this. There are only about nine basic laws of logic, three of them being the most fundamental. And I've covered this before, but we're going to cover it again before we jump into the different types of apologetics. The, the, the three most fundamental uh, laws of logic, also known as the laws of thought, were first penned, I believe, by Socrates. Okay. Socrates wasn't necessarily a Christian. Well, he existed before the time of Christ, but he did believe in a deity. He was a theist, okay? Socrates penned the three basic laws of logic, and I'm here to tell you these laws of logic you and I would know as common sense. But I want to show you something, and you're going you're gonna to probably agree that this is true. Okay, the law of identity is the first one. The, the, the proposition is that A is A. Another way to say it is whatever is true is true. Does that make sense? Common sense. Watch what happens here. The law of non-contradiction. A is not non-A. Nothing can be both true and false at the same time. Does that make sense? Pretty sound, common sense, right? Already, you're probably thinking of things where, well, wait a minute, I hear this, this, and this when, you know, out in the world and in my workplace and things like that. The law of excluded middle, either A or non-A, another way to say it, is everything must be either true or false. Does that make sense? How do we see these three uh, fundamental laws of logic in everyday life? Now, here's an even better question. How do we see them violated in everyday life? Well, to start, how many times have you heard that whatever is true for me may not be true for you? Now, I'm not uh, talking about subjective uh, perspective as in this person is beautiful and this person is not. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about hardcore 
factual reality. A ball is a ball. It is either a ball or it is not a ball. It cannot be a ball and not a ball at the same time. Those facts are grounded in reality. Yet we see now more and more, and it starts to translate into things that become highly subjective, but also philosophically stupid. A man can be a woman. A woman can be a man. A man can be an animal. You see how far we've fallen, how, and it's, it's, if, you, if you think about it, it's really not going to get any better. So let's get into logical propositions. Propositions such as logical syllogism. Okay, so for example, a true syllogism, I use the formula here, premise plus premise plus premise, or it could be one or two, or two or three or two or more, equals a proposition. I'm going to state a simple syllogism, and you tell me whether or not you think it's true or false. All men are mortal. True premise. Socrates is a man. True premise. Therefore, Socrates is mortal. Is that proposition logical? Absolutely. How about this syllogism? Jane is a student. Students like to party. Therefore, Jane likes to party. Is that, a, is that a true or false syllogism? Well, obviously, it's a false syllogism. And you probably spotted the logic in the, or the flaw in the logic. But what I want you to consider is that the proposition made there, this formula, these formulas also are universal in regards to biblical doctrine, not just apologetics, not just logic. Whenever you make a proposition in regards to Scripture, if your premises do not square with each other, and if you check your proposition back with the premises and they do not square all together, ultimately you have a false doctrine. It's really that simple. Anytime Scripture mentions a particular subject, we must consider everything that, that Scripture has to say about that particular subject in order to come to the correct proposition. Okay? Simple logic. Okay. Here's another fundamental logical syllogism getting right into apologetics. This is probably one of the most fundamental in regards to apologetics, especially cosmological arguments. Whatever exists, excuse me, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Premise one. Premise two, the universe began to exist. Proposition, therefore, the universe has a cause. Is that a true or false syllogism? That is the big question. Nearly all objections in the apologetic community, whether it be teleological, cosmological, or ontological, come down, can be narrowed down to this simple syllogism. Can you define those terms? Sir? Can you define those terms? Uh, whatever begins to exist has a cause? No. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to. I, I, I probably should have done that first, but we'll get right into that. Actually, is the very next thing I'm going to do, so that's, sorry about that. No, you, you actually made a good point. I probably should have covered that first, but that, we'll, we'll get right to it. Um, I'll first make this statement. The reason why I'm covering fundamental logic, I think it's really simple, because a simple grasp on logic and apologetics will enable the most simple-minded, uneducated person to stand before the most intelligent and educated of agnostics and atheists and defend their worldview scripturally as God intended. If you start and stand on simple logic, you really can't fail. You don't have to understand the complexities of every argument. 
okay? Now, I'm not saying you should avoid that, but you don't have to. And here's, and again, the most freeing thing, you do not have to prove the existence of God in order for him to be true. Proof is neither a premise nor a prerequisite for what is true to actually be true. The major types of Christian apologetics. Okay, we're going to get into that now to defining our terms. The first, and really, if you ask seven different apologists, you're going to come to about 10 to 15 different groups of apologetics. So I've tried my best to narrow them down to several that hopefully you'll be familiar with. Okay, Classical apologetics is probably the most prominent and popular. Classical apologetics is a prominent strategy in the history of the church methodologically, Uh, This approach to apologetic begins by using natural theology in order to establish theism and then by addressing the historical evidence that support Christianity, such as cosmological, ontological, and teleological, which I'm about to define, uh, tries to bring it all back. Most apologetic arguments simply argue for the existence of a God. Socrates was a deist. A deist or a theist, I'm actually not sure of the difference of the two, if there is actually there is actually one. Not necessarily a Christian or in that time because he was born before the, well before the, the existence of Christ, he would have been a Jew if he were a believer in Scripture. Uh, the next would be the evidential or legal evidentialist method of apologetics. This method takes a broad range of historical evidences or data as the... I found this on the web. Sorry. I push that button. Uh, historical evidences or data as the starting point, and in this way argues for theism and Christianity simultaneously. Remember, theism is simply the existence of a God, not necessarily the existence of the God of Scripture. Uh, but legal evidentialists, uh, within that, there's three subcategories historical, experiential, and relational. Historical would be like resurrection apologetics, the actual. Not only secular proof or secular, excuse me, not proof, secular evidence of the resurrection, you know, testimonies by secular historians such as Josephus uh, um, and others I can't specifically recall right now, but also the documents that help prove there are actually more documents that prove the existence of Christ than prove the existence of Plato and Socrates. That's an interesting fun fact there, Okay. Uh, Resurrection apologetics takes historical evidence as the basis for demonstrating the truth of Christianity, uh, with the specific starting point being the historicity of the New Testament documents. This approach then moves to the use of miracles of Christ, particularly the resurrection. In essence, something happened, and historically it can be shown that something significant happened, that the world was turned upside down, and everything changed during that time and in that place of Christ and the world just completely changed. A broad argument, but nonetheless, there's more specific evidence to support that claim. Now, experiential and prophetic apologetics, not the most popular, but nonetheless, I think there's a degree of validity to them. And what that is, it's the internal approach that appeals to Christian experience as the starting point for the truth of theism or Christianity. It's essentially divided into four major subtypes. Uh, subtypes. One, you have the general religious experience. Well, Tom was a bad man, but something happened, and his life drastically changed. Or for even you personally, I used to be this, this, and this. But then I was presented the gospel, and something happened. I changed. My desires changed. The way I thought changed. The way I believed changed. 
There is validity in your own experience because remember, apologetics is a defense for yourself and for others. It's not necessarily, I don't take what happened to me personally and say, well, this is why you should believe because I know what happened to me. Now remember, it's a defense of the faith, not an offense of the faith, okay? Uh, existential experiences, special religious experiences. Uh, I saw the face of Mary in a burnt piece of toast. Not the strongest apologetic. Um, there was actually, do you guys remember when on, it was like a building, I think it was an actual church, the, the water sprinkler had made a stain on the window that turned out to be like the shape of the Virgin Mary and people came to worship it. Do you remember that? Nonetheless, an apologetic. I would dare say probably not the strongest one available. And I'm not trying to either give credit or take credit away from that. Everybody's experience is different, okay? Um, a changed life. It is an experience is probably the most profound of the experiential types of apologetics. The relational method. Uh, you introduce people to the idea of having a relationship with Christ, the appeal of having a relationship with God. There is an inherent appeal there, okay? Now, into the next category. So, so far I've covered classical, evidential, the subtypes of evidential or legal evidentialist. Now to the, my personal favorite is the presuppositional. Presuppositional, the reason why it's my favorite is because we reason from Christian truths as opposed to reasoning to Christian truths. And here was, here's what I mean by that. By definition, presupposition means to tacitly assume. I cannot prove this Bible is true. I cannot prove that it was actually written by 66 authors over a period of 2,000 years 66 books, 33 authors, authors over a period of 2,000 years that perfectly complement each other, okay? I can't prove that, but I don't have to, okay? That's the, again, that's the freeing part. But it nonetheless is evidence, okay? I choose me personally because it is in my personal nature, as it probably is in yours, to believe that the Bible is true. Therefore, my apologetics are viewed... Through the lens of Scripture. Okay, I choose to view the world first by premising, I believe that the Bible is actually the first premise of all knowledge. That is a choice that I make. I cannot prove that is true. Because of that, I am what's called a young earth creationist. Don't throw darts just yet, okay? I know there's people out there. I'm just kidding. But that's, that's one of my favorite things is presuppositional. What I like about presuppositional apologetics is I believe that it requires true faith to believe. At the starting point says the Bible is the word of God. Furthermore, it is the premise of all knowledge. Instead of natural revelation, the starting point is special revelation, which is the Bible. Assuming the content revealed in Scripture to be truth, the presuppositionalist encourages the unbeliever to do the same since the assumed, tacitly assumed, Biblical truths offer the only possible foundation and explanation for life and godliness, a framework on which uh, to make sense of the world. Now, there's another approach, um, and it really should be the last one I talk about, but it's called the cumulative case method, and essentially it's where you attempt to take all the different types of apologetics, and essentially I believe it's what we all should do, and tie them together to bring and point to Christ crucified. That is the ultimate goal of, that should be, rather, the ultimate goal of any apologetic argument is to essentially point or point to something that points to Christ and Him crucified. 
Because that is the power of God and of salvation. Not my ability to argue or convince you that God is actually real. Okay? The cultural method. Many of you are familiar with Frank Schaefer. He was a brilliant apologist, lived back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. I forget when he died. If you've ever seen, uh, he has a, a list of, it's like a documentary where he talks about different apologetics. Um, I'll have to have to look that up and I can't remember the name of it, but uh, how then shall we live? Have you ever heard of that? If you've never heard or never read or watched rather, I think it's a book as well. It's a documentary called How Then Shall We Live? I highly, highly, highly recommend it. Frank Schaefer was one of the most, Francis Schaefer, I keep saying Frank, Francis Schaefer was one of the most brilliant modern day apologists that lived. Um, The cultural method pioneered by Francis Schaeffer, uses a presuppositional foundation. Again, so it kind of ties in. It's really a subcategory of presuppositional apologetics. Uh, But it helps ultimately build and defend your Christian worldview. That's why I recommend looking into that, okay? I'm going to watch the time here. The epistemological method. I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. This is the one I struggle the most with because, in my opinion, it's the most complicated. (laughs) Um, This approach maintains positive arguments for Christianity or for theism are not necessary for holding a belief in God. Again, this is a little out of my wheelhouse here. Belief in God is properly basic and therefore rational to maintain without having to offer any evidence or argument. Um, I honestly don't understand epistemological method very well, uh, so really I can't speak about it too much. One that we've probably all experienced, the next one and the final one I'll talk about before I get into a couple of arguments is the imaginative method. It's one of my favorites. Imaginative apologetics finds its source in the literary genius of the creative group of apologetics in England, most notably G.K. Chesterton, C.S. Lewis, Dorothy Sayers, J.R. Tolkien, typically used symbolic stories as a central apologetic strategy in their depictions of absolutes, evil, goodness, sacrifice, the ultimate evil, power, corruption, and temptation, Thus using, the power, uh, thus using the power of imagination and storytelling. Also, allegorical form. How many of you have read The Pilgrim's Progress or heard of it? Written by John, Bun- John Bunyan when he was in prison. His testimony, if you haven't read it, it's called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. Absolutely mind-blowing what this man went through and how he wrote Pilgrim's Progress which I believe is the second most published book next to the Bible in the history of the world, but I'm not sure about that. I think that's actually true. All right. So now we're going to get into the classical apologetics, the difference between the teleological um, and the ontological and the cosmological. Okay, I'm going to make sure I've got time here. Teleological. The term teleology can be understood by looking at its Greek origin. It comes from the word telos, meaning end or goal as well as logos. Now, the word logos is often explained many different ways, but what it really comes down to is knowledge, truth, and logic. It's all three of those things. God, the word for God, excuse me, in in John chapter one, in the beginning was the word in the original Greek, it's logos. In the beginning was truth, knowledge, and logic. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones referred to God as logic on fire. I thought that was pretty interesting. <clears throat> so in simple terms, it can be thought of as meaning an end, a logical end explanation. More specifically, it refers to things which are explained in relation to their purpose 
rather than as a consequence of their causes. For example, if you believe that human life has some or other purpose, then you have a teleological picture of humanity. If you believe you have a God-given purpose, that is a teleological defense of your faith. Now, the catechism says, what is the chief end of man? What, do you remember what it says? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is, our, that is a teleological proposition. Okay? The first, uh, excuse me, the teleological arguments are a group of interrelated arguments in favor of the existence of God. Variations of the arguments are, among others, the argument from design, the argument from regularity, uh, intelligent design. Many of you are familiar with the intelligent design argument. Um, I, well, here's, here's one of the most well-known teleological arguments is the watchmaker argument. How many of you have heard the watchmaker argument? If you haven't, it's actually really simple. Man's walking along a beach full of sand, water out the dome. He sees a watch in the sand. He bends down to pick it up and he looks at it and he can tell there is a design in that watch. It just didn't create itself, even over time. There's a purpose in it. For me to look at another, let's go even deeper. For me to look at the human eye in its intricate detail and say it just created itself over, you know, given enough time, it went from a single cell organism to a multicellular organism over time. Which do you think is more logical? Is it more logical that it was created in design or that it somehow created itself? I think it really does come down to those two fundamental propositions or questions, okay? The first premise of teleological arguments looks at natural phenomenon, the human eye, the brain, the nervous system, things like that, uh, animals, structure within in the world, recognizing their extreme detail, structure, and functional nature and achieving a purpose. The argument ends with the conclusion that this must be the work, the creation of a deliberative mind. There's purpose in it. When the man looked at that watch, although he may not have fully understood its purpose, he saw very clearly and logically there was a purpose. It was made for a reason. If you look at another human being or look at yourself, you can clearly see logically in your fundamental logic, something's going on here. I was made for a purpose. The ontological argument. I'm going to do my very best to explain the ontological argument. It's one of my favorites because it's, it's an abstract argument. It's not an argument based on, it's a priori, which means it's, it's knowledge deducted from reasoning, not knowledge deducted from, from fact like evidence. Okay, Evidence in the sense of this chair was made by somebody, right? It's, it's, a, it's, a little, it's a different kind of an argument. Ontology is the philosophical study of being as well as related concepts such as existence. Ontological arguments are arguments for the conclusion that God's, God exists from premises which are supposed to derive from some source other than the observation of the world, from reason alone. In other words, ontological arguments are arguments from what are typically alleged to be non, none but analytic or a priori, knowledge from deduction rather than observation, and necessary premises to the conclusion that God exists. The first and best known ontological argument was pro proposed by St. Anselm of Cat Canterbury in the 11th century in his Proslogion, which is Latin for pro-logic or pro-knowledge. St. Anselm claims to derive the existence of God from the concept of being that which no greater being can be conceived. 
In order for me to give you the ontological argument, I'm going to frame it with a few considerations. Consideration number one, a possible world is a way a world might have been true, but not necessarily actually true. For example, unicorns do not exist, but there is some possible, you have to admit, there's some possible way where a possible world, a possible reality, and I'm not talking about the stupid multiverse, but a possible reality where it's possible to conceive that a unicorn might be a real thing, okay? Two, an actual world is a description that is true and can be proven true. Numbers exist. Mathematicians agree that in any possible conceivable world that mathematics would be universal. One plus one will be true in any world, any possibility, right? Three, God is by definition, this is where Anselm said, God is by definition the greatest being conceivable. No greater being can be conceived of than God. If you could conceive of any greater being that would, or if you could conceive of any greater, that being would not be God. Okay, God is what's called a maximally great being. All powerful, all knowledge exists in every possible world. A being that existed without any of those would not be maximally great. Number four, if God's existence is possible in any world, it follows that God must exist. If a maximally great being exists in any possible world, it exists in all of them. That's what it means to be maximally great. That's a fundamental, logical, universal proposition. In every logical possible world, therefore, he exists in, in the actual world. So I'm going to give you a seven-layered syllogism. Number one, possible maximally great being exists. Number two, if it's possible that a maximally great being exists, then it exists in some possible world. Number three, if a maximally great being exists in some possible world, it exists in every possible world by necessity. Number four, if a maximally great being exists in every possible world, then it exists in this world, in the actual world. Number five, therefore, a maximally great being exists in the actual world. Therefore, a maximally great being exists. Proposition. Therefore, God exists. That's the, that's the fundamental argument for, for the ontological argument. It might surprise you to know that steps two through seven are relatively incontrovertible. Most philosophers agree that steps two through seven are logical if premise one is true. Is it possible? So the question really is, Anselm postulated the question that if it is possible that a greatest, the greatest being conceivable exists, then it does exist. Does that make sense? Some of you might be saying yes or no. I would encourage you to go back and look at this argument again. The atheist has to maintain that it is impossible that God exists. The atheist has to answer for premise one. That's really something they cannot logically hold up, okay? He must maintain that the concept of God is logically incoherent like a round square or a married bachelor, okay? got just a few more minutes. Cosmological, most notably uh, cosmo cosmological arguments. Thomas Aquinas lived in 1200, uh, the 1200s. He was an Italian friar. Um, he proposed five different types of cosmological arguments. The argument for motion, which means there is, if there's a first cause, there must be a prime mover, or the, the first cause of anything that exists must have a prime cause, a first cause. The argument from efficient cause, nothing can cause itself 
logical propositions. Argument from necessary being, uh, it's possible, it's either possible to exist or not exist. They can't both be true at the same time. Argument from gradations of goodness, there's different degrees of goodness. That's a whole other conversation. But if you think about it, if you have something that is somewhat good, it must eventually go to the greatest good. That's essentially the argument there. The argument for design, technically, uh, it's a teleological argument. The universe is like a machine. Okay. The challenge I would have for you um, is, sorry, I hope I covered everything there. Just a couple more minutes. The challenge I would have for you guys is for you to create your own. I saw that going differently. To create your own apologetic argument. If you'll humor me just for a few minutes as I pick this stuff up. I have attempted to create my own uh, cosmological argument. Some of you might have heard it before. Okay, real quick. Cosmological argument. First, concerning first causes. An infinite regression of first causes is impossible. If everything that's happened in the world were a set of dominoes, you must concede logically that the first domino occurred somewhere because an infinite regression is impossible. So the question is, who created the dominoes and who was the first cause? Who was the prime mover? Okay. <coughs> An infinite regression. These are dominoes. An infinite regression of first causes is not logically possible. So what caused the first domino? Now, here is my apologetic argument I'd like you to consider. Equally, when we consider matter in the universe... An infinite regression of smallness is illogical. Here's what I mean by that. What is the most fundamental composition of everything that we are? It's, it's known as matter. The most fundamental composition of matter is what? Atoms. But we usually stop there. Or we'll go a little bit further and say, well, we know atoms are composed of protons, neutrons, and electrons. But then we stop there. And then the question is, well, what are they actually made of? What is their fundamental composition? Scientists have discovered there's something called leptons and quarks. It gets deeper. But here's the thing. If an infinite regression of first causes is impossible or illogical, then an infinite regression of smallness is impossible as well. So the most fundamental building block of matter can't be matter at all. Scientists have postulated that it's actually transcendent of matter. Could it be sound? Sound waves. The most fundamental composition of who you are isn't matter. It's sound. Now, when God created everything, how did he do it? He spoke. The most fundamental composition of everything that exists is indeed the voice of God. Sound waves. Pretty, pretty uh, cool stuff. Sorry about the mess there. That's it.